Hello everyone, Kirk Hamilton here, and welcome to a Strong Songs bonus episode. We're going to be talking about some fundamental musical concepts on this episode. I think it's going to be a good time, and we're going to get into, you know, some of the basics that you want to understand, some of the terminology and nomenclature that will help you get more out of each episode of Strong Songs. So without further ado, sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy this bonus episode of Strong Songs. If you ask me to break music down to its absolute most basic elements, those two elements would be rhythm and harmony. I use the words rhythm and harmony all the time on this show, and while I bet that most listeners know more or less what I mean when I use those words, I thought it would actually be fun to really explore the two concepts, because they are kind of the two things that make all of music. It's always sort of fun to try to boil something down to its absolute fundamental elements, and so that's what we're going to be doing on this bonus episode. Before we get started, I should note one thing, that is that this bonus episode is made possible by my Patreon backers. This is a Patreon special. Um, It was a goal on my Patreon campaign once we reached a certain number of backers. I said I would make a bonus episode explaining terminology. Sort of a loose concept at the time. I had a whole bunch of possible ways I could have gone with it. I decided to keep it kind of focused. We have have another goal. It's like in another hundred supporters or so, and I will do another one of these episodes. I think I'm going to make it about specific musical instruments. So that'll be pretty fun. If you want to help me make this show, and if you want to have more bonus episodes like this one, head over to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more. Okay, so rhythm and harmony, the two fundamental aspects of music, the two things that we're going to be kind of defining and explaining some you know, musical terms, some terminology, some concepts uh, relating to each of those two words. So the way that I see music is there are kind of two axes. So if you picture it in your mind, picture it as an x-axis and a y-axis. Don't worry, I know I'm making you feel like you're back in geometry class, but it's not going to be that uh, geometrical. But you do want to picture these two axes, right? So there's a horizontal x-axis moving you know, left to right, and there's a vertical y-axis moving up and down. Now the x-axis, the one that goes left to right, that's rhythm. That's how the music moves over time. The y-axis moving up and down, that's harmony. That's what frequencies are sounding at any given point in time. This is probably striking many of you as pretty straightforward. And if you picture sheet music, even if you don't read music, you can maybe kind of picture it. But I'm guessing a lot of people listening do at least read some music. Sheet music is basically those two axes, right? The staff, whatever clef you're reading, you know, bass clef, treble clef. um, The staff is the y-axis, and that's showing you, you know, F-A-C-E, E-G-B-D-F, every good boy deserves fudge. That's showing you the harmony axis, and that kind of defines the harmony for what notes you're actually playing. If you go from left to right, that's the x-axis, that's rhythm. So that's, you know, the length of each note, note durations, a quarter note, an eighth note, a sixteenth note. The, uh, the, the movement of the harmony over time is written out from left to right. Now, these two aspects can exist totally independently of one another. You know, basically, you can have harmony with no rhythm, and you can have rhythm with no harmony. They're both still music. There is music that sounds like that, though by and large, music exists in the intersection between those two axes. You know, it exists on both of those axes, and the magic comes from the intersection of rhythm and harmony. So we're going to get into a bunch of the terms that relate to rhythm and the terms that relate to harmony, but before we do that, I thought it would be cool to isolate the two things and hear what they sound like kind of separate from one another. So let's start with harmony. What does harmony sound like without any rhythm, or at least basically without any rhythm. So to do that, I pulled out a synth that I really love. This is a a synth plugin called Absynth, made by Native Instruments, really beautiful sounds. And I just put together a big, warm pad. And this is just called a pad. It's sort of a G major seventh 
kind of a sound, G major seventh over A, and uh, it's just it's just the sound of harmony with no rhythm. It's not going anywhere. It's just like a cloud of notes. There's a peacefulness to it, right? Because it isn't going anywhere. It feels static. It feels like you're you're kind of like looking at a blurry, you know, just sunset or something and you're you're sitting still. It doesn't have any momentum because it's not really moving through time. Now, I mentioned that it was basically without rhythm because there are some oscillators going on. There are some things in that synth that are causing it to kind of undulate a bit. And that does give the sense of change over time, which is, you know, a little bit of a cheat. I could have made it just a completely flat sound, which would almost just sound like a tone. But, you know, you got to have some rhythm in there. But that's basically like as little rhythm as you can possibly have. That is pure harmony with almost no rhythm. You'll notice that's not an unfamiliar sound, right? You've probably heard sounds like that in meditation apps, maybe in video games that are trying to conjure a certain kind of a space, in movies, that that kind of a sound, no rhythm, pretty much pure harmony, it's a pretty common thing, actually, because it implies a sort of a static, you know, color with no forward motion. Okay, so now how about the opposite, rhythm with no harmony? Well, you've heard that a lot, too. That's basically any time you just hear a drum beat, a drum on ensemble. There are, you know, pitches in there. Drums are tuned to certain pitches, but by and large, when you hear a drum beat on its own with no bass, no guitar, no keyboard, nothing implying any kind of harmonic, you know, information, you're just hearing different ways of marking and cutting up the passage of time. Now, I'm not an expert on relativity, but I'm going to say for the purposes of this podcast that time moves the same for everybody. And as you listen to this, you are listening to it through time. You know, my words are placed in sequence over that same x-axis that uh, that is the x-axis that all music is also oriented to. The passage of time is just like a constant that everything is set to. So you could start by just making one click per second, and it could just be a click. It doesn't have to have any harmony to it at all, just sort of a sound that marks that rhythm happens one time every second, 60 times every minute. Okay, so even the most basic clock isn't that boring, so let's make it a little bit more exciting. Let's add a couple of different timbres, a couple of different drum sounds, and just put together a little bit of a groove that doesn't really have any harmonic information, but does contain rhythmic information. And just like that, you've got a pulse, right? It's just a pulse. There's not really any harmonic information there, but you've got this pure rhythm that's sort of moving you forward through time. Now, the magic of music, of course, is when those two things come together. You start with your harmony, and you take this big open space, and you don't even need to make the harmony itself start moving. You can just add the rhythm to the harmony, and you get something that sounds significantly different. Even if the drums stop after they start, you can't erase from your brain the fact that they were just there. The drums are time. The drums are the urgency of the motion of time. And by introducing them to something so static as just a big open chord, 
It's a reminder that time is moving forward. It's basically the musical equivalent of that feeling you would get at the end of summer vacation when you would realize that it's August. So what I've been doing here is taking rhythm and just superimposing it over harmony. I've taken the two sort of the two elements divorced from one another and then just mashed them together. But there is one other concept that I should talk about. That's what happens when rhythm and harmony fully intersect. What I'm talking about, of course, is melody. Melody is a really important aspect of music, and I think that it's sort of one level up from the really fundamental, you know, aspects of rhythm and harmony because a melody has both rhythmic and harmonic qualities to it. It kind of has to in order to work as a melody. Let me just demonstrate that really quick. Here is a collection of notes played all at once. Here is that same collection of notes played in an order dictated by rhythm. So I have now applied rhythm to those same notes, but they now have a rhythmic aspect to them, and thus they become a melody. Basically what I've done is taken something that consisted entirely of data points along a y-axis vertically, and I've spaced out those data points along the x-axis horizontally, so they are now distributed and then heard by you, the listener, in a certain order. So by putting those notes in a certain order, suddenly you get a melody, right? So let's now plug that melody in to the harmony and the rhythm that we already had, and see what happens if we take totally independent harmony existing on its own. And then we add a drum beat to that. So we've added rhythm to that. So now we have rhythm and harmony kind of existing together. And then we add a melody, which has both rhythmic and harmonic elements. I hope that you're hearing this and kind of seeing it along that axis, you know, the way that those elements are intersecting with one another in this kind of very stripped down thing, because that's kind of it. I mean, that's where the magic happens, right? The creation of music is just placing points along those two axes, rhythm and harmony. endless other ways that harmony and rhythm intersect. I mean, that's basically what I've spent this whole podcast doing. If you break it down to its fundamentals, I've just been talking about the intersection of harmony and rhythm, and I guess sometimes words, but really just harmony and rhythm. But I think that breaking them down to their elements that way and then putting them together does a good job of kind of explaining why they're so fundamental and and how they work on a kind of basic level. Okay, so I want this episode to be a practical guide. I want this to actually be useful for people who listen to strong songs and just who want to know more about music and converse about music a little bit more and know about the terminology. So I want to get into terminology now that we've kind of identified the two big picture concepts we're going to be talking about. 
Okay, so let's start with harmony. I'm going to go through some terms and some concepts that I throw around on the show all the time. Um, sometimes I'll slow down and explain what they are. I try to do that, but you know, sometimes I don't because they are pretty fundamental and I'm hoping that people are kind of listening to this show from the beginning. They're starting to pick up what these things are, even if they don't have any musical training or it's coming back to them if they you know, studied an instrument a long time ago. But I do want to go through all of them now and break them down for you. I'm not going to spend very long on each of these. I just kind of want to really quickly go through each one and explain what they are. Since we're doing harmony first, let's start with the idea of a key. Okay, so a key is a piece of harmonic information. This is not rhythmic information, purely harmony. And what it tells you is what collection of notes creates the identifying home sound for this piece of music. Now, there aren't actually that many possible keys that a song could be in. Most of the songs that we've talked about on this show, actually all of the songs we've talked about on this show, are built out of this sort of 12-note harmonic standard that has developed and emerged over the centuries. That's not to say that's the only harmonic standard. There are actually all kinds of cool harmonic standards, over the world. That's the one I'm most familiar with. It's the one I went to school for. And it's the one that all of the songs I've talked about so far anyways have been based out of. So that's kind of what I'm explaining here. That's what this is based on. Okay, so there are 12 possible notes, C, D, E, F, G, A, and B. And then there are sharp and flat versions of those. So there are 12 notes. They sound like this when you play them in order. That incidentally is called a chromatic scale. Whenever something moves chromatically, it's moving just note to note to note to note to note. That's if you sit at the piano, you start just playing white key, black key, white key, black key, and you kind of move up in the shortest increments you possibly can. That's moving chromatically. Sometimes you'll hear me talk about steps. I'll say things move a certain number of half steps or whole steps. Same kind of concept. A half step is the shortest distance between two notes. Moving chromatically is moving by half steps. Okay, so there are 12 notes. Each of those notes can be a key. You can be in the key of D or you can be in the key of A flat, um, any of those 12 notes. So that's 12 possible keys. However, there's one other variable and that's whether you're in a major key or a minor key. I'm sure you've heard me talk a lot on this show about oh, such and such is in A major, such and such is in D minor. You can be in a major key or you can be in a minor key. That means you could be in A major or A minor. So that one variable, that's the only other variable that you need to get your head around, but that that means there are actually 24 possible keys. There are the major and minor variants of the 12 notes that exist in the chromatic scale. So I really want to thread the needle here between going too deep on any one of these subjects and moving so fast that I lose people, but I don't want to spend too long on this only because I could do a whole episode just about key and how key works and what key all the songs we've listened to are in, but mostly I just want you to know what key means when I say the word key. And what that means basically is, where are we? It's, you know, every musician who learns a new piece of music, the first thing they're going to ask is, what key is it in? Because the key is the thing that tells you, okay, this is going to be your home base, you're in A major, that means these notes are sharp, you know, these notes are natural, you're going to be, you know, kind of starting here, it tells you, you know, we are starting at this place, A major, and you have a frame of reference to build everything else on from there. Sometimes songs have key changes. The episode about Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, I talked quite a bit about the key change in that song because the Whitney Houston version has an amazing key change. That means the home base changes. If the key change goes up, as it does in I Will Always Love You, it's a really exciting sound because suddenly everything has moved up and your whole frame of reference has shifted. (laughs) 
okay, 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 I'll level with you. I just, I wanted to put that key change in another episode because it's it's really fun to listen to. Um, Aretha Franklin's Think is another good example of a song with a bunch of key changes. I talked about that a lot on that episode. One more where you can hear a bunch of examples of a song that actually changes keys twice. If you're talking about the 1980 Blues Brothers version and each of those key changes moves up. And so the home of the song moves up and increases the intensity just a little bit. Okay, so in the world of harmony, key establishes the home. Key establishes the kind of baseline. And then you kind of build on top of that with building blocks. And I would say the two building blocks that I want to identify for you are chords and scales. Now, when I said that something could be in the key of A major, there's also a such thing as an A major chord. Those are two different things, and I get how that could kind of be confusing. Basically, A major, the key, means you're in the key of A major, but you could play a whole bunch of different chords in the context of the key of A major. Remember, the key is just like the ground that you're building on top of. The key that the song is in, that's a piece of information, but it's not actually music. The chord A major is a musical thing. When someone plays an A major chord, it is a thing, and it sounds like this. That's an A major chord. So you can play an A major chord in a song that's in the key of A major, but they're two different things, and the A major chord is an actual musical element. Now, I also said scales. Those are also an actual musical element. There is an A major chord, and then there is an A major scale. A scale is a sequence of notes, single notes played one at a time. So a scale has like a rhythmic quality to it, right? Because if you remember the Y and the X axis, the scale does have to go sort of sequentially through time. When you play a chord, the notes can be all stacked on top of one another like this. When you play a scale, it's one note at a time and they go in a certain order. In the case of A major, they go in this order. So I'm going to keep our focus on chords for a while, but I just want you to understand the relationship between chords and scales, because they're kind of two halves of the same thing. A chord tells you a lot of harmonic information. There's a bunch of different kinds of chords. We're going to go through a few of them here in a minute. A scale will correspond to a chord. So when you play, say, an A major chord, you then play an A major scale. If you play an A dominant chord with a flat 9, you'll play maybe an A half-hole diminished scale. So like there's a bunch of different kinds of scales and there's a bunch of different kinds of chords. Each chord typically has one scale that corresponds to it best. Though when you get into much more advanced and complicated chords, um, there are actually a number of different types of scales that can work over them. And part of the creativity of composition is like figuring out the type of scale you want to use over a certain chord or even like breaking the rules and using scales that you're not technically supposed to use, whatever that means, over a chord and getting a different kind of a sound that way. One last thing that I want to explain is just what the numbers mean when we're talking about chords and scales. You know, you'll hear someone say, that's got a flat fifth, or a minor third, or a sharp nine. And those numbers correspond to the notes from the scale. This is actually something I just explained on the recent episode about the Cardigan's Love Fool. But basically, if you take the notes of a scale and you count them in order, you just give an ascending number to each subsequent note in the scale. You go one, two, three, four, five six seven eight now that was an a major scale it started on an a and it ended on an a up one octave so then it would just begin repeating with nine ten eleven and sometimes you do use those numbers in certain chords but really as long as you understand that the numbers that i'm using always correspond to what's called a scale degree one two three four so if i say one three four i'm talking about those three notes and it's just a way of instead of having to say a c sharp d you can just speak more universally regardless of what key you're in 
So we're going to go really quickly through some chords now, and I just want you to know that when I talk about the three, or the five, or the seven, or the nine, that's what those numbers mean. That That's where they're coming from. Alright, so chords. I think it's time for us to take a whirlwind tour. Let's ride the whirlwind through a bunch of different kinds of chords. These are all chord names and chord types that you will hear me mention on the show, and now you will kind of hear them at least in the context of all the other possible kinds of chords there are. Chords can have anywhere from 3 to, I don't know, 12 notes. There's no real upper limit. Let's start with the three-note chords. Those are called triads. The most basic ones are the major triad and the minor triad. You can also raise the fifth on a major triad and you get an augmented triad. Or you can lower the third and the fifth and you get a diminished triad. You can also raise the third up and it becomes the fourth and you get what's called a sus chord. Lovely sound, the sus chord. Very useful. It means a suspended fourth because the fourth is kind of suspended up there. Okay, so those triads are kind of the most basic types of chord. Let's add a layer of complexity and we're going to add a seventh. So now we have the one, the three, the five, and the seventh. Here are a bunch of types of seventh chords. There is a major seventh chord. A minor 7th chord, which has a flat 7 and a flat 3rd. A minor major 7th chord, which has a minor 3rd, a lowered 3rd, and a major 7th. That's that James Bondy chord we've talked about before on the show. A very important kind of chord is the dominant chord. This is a major 3rd and a lowered 7th. Dominant chords are everywhere in blues, everywhere in rock. Very, very common kind of a chord. You can take a dominant chord and raise the 5th, and you get an augmented dominant. You can lower the 3rd, the 5th, and the 7th, and you get a minor 7 flat 5 chord, otherwise known as a half diminished. Or, you can keep going from there, you can take that lowered 3rd, lowered 5th, and lowered 7th, and then lower the 7th another half step, and you get a fully diminished 7th chord. One last thing you can do, you can take a dominant chord, and you can make it a sus, so remember you can raise that 3rd up to be a 4th, and you get a dominant 7 sus 4, another really cool sounding chord. So we can keep going from there, you can go above the octave, and you can begin adding ninths. these are called chord extensions, you can have a sharp 9 or flat 9, those are like pretty common, Jimi Hendrix really loved the dominant 7 sharp 9 chord, you can go even higher than that, you can have a sharp 11, sharp 11 starts to get into that Lydian sound we've talked about, that very bright hopeful sound, uh, major 7 sharp 11, really nice sounding chord, you can go up to the 13 even, which you know a flat 13 sharp 9 chord, it's also called an altered chord, you can get much more complicated than we have, and there are a lot of other kinds of chords than the ones that I've discussed here. What I really just want to communicate is what a chord is, how many different ways they can sound, and how it functions in the music that we talk about on this show. So the last concept related to chords that I want to explain is what a chord progression is. And every song we've talked about on the show has had a chord progression. We haven't done any songs yet that just have one chord. But basically a chord progression means kind of what it sounds like it means. It means a progression of chords. So when you hear someone say something like, oh yeah, it goes one, four, one, five, four, one, they're talking about, you know, a sequence of chords. And then those chords could be different qualities. So one major to four dominant, back to one major. And they're kind of going to use the types of chords that we've talked about and then put them in a sequence that creates a kind of a progression that your ear can then follow. So basically you're assigning the chords over time. You're adding a rhythmic aspect to this. You're moving the chords out over that x-axis so that the chords are changing. Actually another term for a chord progression is the chord changes. A lot of times people just call it the changes. Hey, what are the changes for this song? And that just means how are the chords going to change? What does the chord progression look like? Alright, so we're nearing the end of the harmony section of this podcast. The last thing I want to go over is just a 
little bit more on scales. Now, like I said before, a good way to think about this is that a chord is a stack of notes placed on top of one another, while a scale is individual notes played in sequence. Now, like I said, there's usually a scale that corresponds to each chord, though I don't want to make it sound like scales and chords are exactly parallel to one another. At some point, they kind of become their own things. You know, scale theory, there's a lot of different kinds of scales that can be used over a lot of different kinds of chords. They are kind of individual. They're just very closely related. Okay, so it's time for another whirlwind tour. This time of scales. I'm just going to go really quickly through a whole bunch of kinds of scales that I might mention on the show or have maybe mentioned in the past. First of all, there's a major scale. There is also a minor scale. There's a harmonic minor scale, which has a major seventh. And there's the melodic minor scale, which only has a flat third. The Mixolydian scale is very useful over dominant chords. There's also the Lydian scale, which has that sharp 4 and is used in a lot of film scoring. Lydian and Mixolydian are both modal scales. Those come from modes of the major scale. I'm not going to get into what modes are, but another pretty common modal scale is Dorian. Dorian has a flat 3rd, a flat 7th, and a natural 6th. That one actually turned up a lot in the paranoid Android analysis that I did. So if you want to hear some cool Dorian stuff, go listen to that episode. A couple other kinds of scales. First, there is the diminished scale, very useful scale. There's also the whole tone scale, which just moves in whole steps. Both of those are what's known as symmetrical scales because they follow symmetrical um, divisions of the notes. Basically, there's only three diminished scales and there's only two whole tone scales. So once you've learned the two, it's just a matter of starting it on a different note, but you already know the scale, which makes them kind of easier to learn. Lastly, we have pentatonic scales, which have five notes in them, pentatonic. And pentatonic scales are simplified scales that can be used in a lot of different ways. And a whole lot of blues improvisation and sort of rock improvisation will revolve around pentatonic scales. They're really cool. To get a pentatonic scale, you basically start with a major scale, which has eight notes, and you just remove a few of them. So you only take a few notes from a major scale. They basically just go one, two, three, five, six, like this. They're very neutral sounding, they remove some of the more tense intervals in a full scale, and you can have a major pentatonic or you can also have a minor pentatonic, which sounds like this. You might remember I mentioned that Jimmy Page was using a lot of minor pentatonic scales in his solo on Stairway to Heaven. You'll hear a lot of minor pentatonic stuff in various guitar solos. Pentatonics are very useful for soloing, they're really cool sound, they're very versatile, you can do a ton of stuff with pentatonic scales. So when I mention a pentatonic, that's what I'm talking about. You also might know the very well-known a cappella group Pentatonics, and uh, now you know what their name is a play on. There's five of them, and uh, the Pentatonic scale is a very widely used, uh, really useful scale. So it's a little joke. Okay, so we've covered three things for the harmony section of this episode. We have talked about key, we've talked about chords, and we've talked about scales. First of all, the key, remember, is just a piece of information. It tells you where you are and where home is. What key are we in? What is the baseline for this song? Chords are stacks of notes put on top of one another. There could be a whole bunch of different kinds of chords, and they move in a progression. You can be in any key, and you can play a whole bunch of different chords if that chord progression is moving around in a way that makes sense for that key. 
Lastly, we learn scales. Scales are individual notes placed in sequence, and scales tend to correspond to chords, so they are kind of their own thing. Scales are basically what you use to create a melody over a chord progression. Okay, so that's harmony. Let's move on to rhythm. So in harmony, we're talking about a lot of vertical concepts, right? The idea of stacking notes on top of one another and building chords. It's a, you know, harmony is a much more vertical thing. That's why I kind of associate it with a y-axis. Rhythm is a much more horizontal thing. Rhythm occurs over time, and it's a way of breaking up and discussing and kind of codifying the passage of time. That's really all rhythm is. So when we talk about rhythm, we're going to be talking a lot about time. So remember, in harmony, the key kind of tells you your home. There are three pieces of information in rhythm that tell you the same kind of information. They combine to form kind of the rhythmic key, even though that's not really a thing. Same kind of concept. Those three things are the tempo, the time signature, and the feel. So those are the three things that we're going to talk about uh, here. So tempo tells you how fast are we moving. Very basic piece of information. How fast is the beat? Are we going slow? Are we going in the middle? Are we going really fast? So that's the lowest level information you can have. How fast are we moving? Time signature is one layer up from there. That's how are we dividing up that tempo? Are we going to put notes into groups of three or groups of five or alternating groups of three and five or maybe just four, which is the most common kind of time signature. Feel is the most specific one yet. That's one layer up from time signature. Feel is just how is this going to groove? What's the feel of the tempo going to be like? Is it going to swing? Is it going to be straight? Where are the accents going to be? What's the pulse going to be like? So we got tempo down on the bottom, then time signature, then feel. Those are the three things we're going to talk about. So I want to get tempo out of the way first because we're not actually going to be doing a whole ton of tempo. I'm more concerned with showing you a few different time signatures and reminding you what they are, getting them in your ear. Tempo though, so remember, tempo is just how fast you're going. A tempo marker is how many beats per minute are there in the song. This is called how many clicks per minute, how many clicks. Uh, BPM is the, the shortening for it, you know, beats per minute. And it usually starts somewhere around 60. That's about as slow as anything goes, which is one beat per second. That's very slow for a song. If you think about it, that tempo sounds like this. Not very fast. You don't hear a lot of songs that are much slower than that, though you could go slower, you know, 45 beats per minute or something that's really slow and it's very hard to play that slow. But there are songs occasionally that'll go that slowly. And of course, anything that's being conducted in orchestral piece where the conductor is, is directing the band, those pieces can go quite slow. I'm talking more, of course, about pop music, rock music, the kind of stuff I talk about more typically on this show. That's also where you'll hear um, tempo descriptors like Largo, Tranquilo, Andante, Moderato, like those are the the Italian um, terms for different different speeds, are used more in classical music. I don't use them on this show just because they're not really used that much in rock and popular music, and that's more what I'm talking about here. But when you hear people use terms like that, you know, presto, that means very very fast. That's like I think 160 beats per minute or something, or maybe even a little faster. But that's where those come from when you do hear people using them. In general, though, like I said, 60 beats per minute, kind of the floor for popular music. When you get into the like 80 to 100 zone, you're in the kind of slow rock, slow groove zone. 100 to 115 is like that really solid walking tempo that you'll hear like Stayin' Alive, those kinds of songs. I think Stayin' Alive is like 103 beats per minute is kind of where I clock it. And that's just like a really solid pulse. And you go a little faster than that, it's like a 
slightly faster walk. So that's like the kind of low 100 zone. 120 to 140 starts to feel a little bit faster. Get above 140 and it really starts to feel fast. 200 beats per minute is quite fast. That's you're really playing something quick. You'll rarely hear songs on the radio that are at 200 beats per minute. You know, that's kind of getting into kind of shred zone. And then 200 to 300, there are songs that go 300 beats per minute. You know, some jazz tunes get up toward 300. Some of the stuff Coltrane was doing on Giant Steps, these really burning tunes get going that fast. But by and large, you're more in the realm of, you know, prog music, jazz music, really like really fast, really difficult stuff once you get past 200 beats per minute. The vast majority of pop music and rock music is somewhere between like 80 and 140 and actually kind of trending toward the actual middle there around that 100 to 120 zone. <laughs> All right, train, come on. Okay, so that's tempo. Uh, let's move on to time signatures. Once you've got a tempo established, that's kind of the pulse, you know, just the basic how fast we're doing this. The next question is, how are we going to chop it up? Because, of course, any beat, you know, this is just a basic beat, any beat can be divided up in a bunch of different ways. And what that's called is subdivision. Rhythmic subdivision means taking a bigger note and then subdividing it into smaller notes. So that's where you go from a whole note, which is worth four beats, to a half note, each of which are worth two beats, to a quarter note, which is worth one apiece, so there are four of those in a whole note, to an eighth note, which is worth half of a quarter note, there are eight of those in a whole note, to a sixteenth note, to a thirty-second note, to a sixty-fourth note. You can kind of think of it like inception. You're going one layer deeper and deeper and deeper into the dream and the farther down you go the more you're chopping up the beat and the more quickly the notes are happening unlike an in inception time doesn't actually change or dilate as you go deeper so that's actually a pretty significant difference and it's making me rethink using that as a point of comparison actually since it's such a major part of the movie and i hope i didn't just confuse everyone i'm gonna leave it in i believe in you all i think you can probably work out the ways the two are similar and also the ways that they're different Three specific types of subdivision that I want to highlight here are downbeats, upbeats, and triplets. So once you've established the tempo, which I'm going to do by turning on the metronome right now. So here's the metronome. Okay, so the tempo is established. That's 100 clicks per minute. And once you have that established, downbeats are any notes that happen on the beat. So in sync with the metronome. Here are some downbeats. Okay, so upbeats are the opposite. Upbeats occur in the spaces between the beats, directly between the beats, on what's called the upbeat. Upbeats sound like this. Now we tend to hear downbeats and our ear kind of favors downbeats. So when music favors upbeats a lot and is written with a lot of upbeats, it can wind up sounding kind of deceptive. When music is deceptive in that way, it's referred to as being very syncopated. And we talk about syncopated music a lot on this show. Whenever we talk about like a fake out intro, you know, an intro to a song where it makes you think the beat is in one place, but then the drums come in and they're actually somewhere else. They're usually using syncopation in some way to kind of misdirect your ear. So downbeats and upbeats and syncopation which involves misdirecting your ear, usually by using upbeats and making you think they're downbeats, or just generally by using a lot of upbeats and downbeats to kind of keep you off balance. The last thing is the triplet, which is something I reference a lot on this show because triplets are a kind of essential aspect of the way that a lot of modern music works. A triplet is when you put three notes and superimpose them over two beats. It's all it's a little more technical and variable than that, like you can have different kinds of triplets, but that's a good way to think of it is three over two. So when you have two beats, I'm gonna start the tempo again, and you start playing 
groups of three notes that fit over those two beats. That's called a triplet. You can think of it like a fraction kind of. It's like three over two, three notes over two beats. So it's a little faster than it would be if it were just downbeats or just upbeats. There's one extra note fit into the same amount of space. Triplets combined with downbeats and upbeats can give you all kinds of really cool syncopation, all kinds of really interesting grooves. A lot of the grooves and beats that we talk about on Strong Songs are derived from combining downbeats, upbeats, and triplets. There's more to subdivision than just that, but those three things are the most important to know. Downbeats, upbeats, and triplets. So subdivision relates to time signatures in that they're both about how you're kind of dividing the passage of time. The tempo is telling you how fast the beat is moving, so the time signature is telling you how you're dividing up those beats. So we're going to start with just a 100 beats per minute tempo. So this is my metronome, my trusty doctor beat, going at 100 clicks per minute, no time signature, nothing defined other than that tempo. So if you wrote this out, it would just look like a whole bunch of notes, just a whole bunch of quarter notes going onto the horizon. No bar lines, nothing defining anything, kind of no shape, just a pulse. Now a time signature is going to add structure to that pulse, and the way that's going to do it is going to be by defining two variables. This is going to get a little bit mathematic, but um, don't worry, it's not going to be that complicated. Basically, every time signature has two variables. When I talk about time signatures, you probably hear me say numbers like it's in 7-8, it's in 12-16, it's in 5-4, it's in 3-4, it's in 2-2. There's always two numbers. The numbers are the two variables that I'm talking about. I'm gonna tell you what each one is, and then we're gonna go through a few common time signatures. Okay, so let's take just one time signature. This is three, four is the time signature. This is a pretty common one, not the most common one, but a pretty common one, and it is three, four. What that means is it's kind of written like a fraction, three over four. Now, basically, the second number, four, means that a quarter note gets the beat, and the first number, three, means that there are three of them in each measure. A measure is just a collection of beats. It repeats over and over and over over again as long as the time signature remains the same and the time signature tells us how many beats are in each measure. In 3-4 time, there are three quarter notes in every measure. Important side note, I use the words measure and bar interchangeably probably too much. I should probably do it less. But um, measure and bar for me are the same thing. Sometimes I'll be like, there are three bars in this song or in this phrase. There are four measures. A measure and a bar, same thing as far as I'm concerned. Just so you know, from here on out, I always kind of just use them interchangeably. Sorry if that's confusing. So instead of having a sort of ongoing undefined series of beats that's just like one, 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 a time signature lets you establish a framework onto the pulse. So suddenly you're counting it one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And that's what three, four is. It's actually a waltz, a very common kind of a time signature. And it's defined by the fact that there are three beats in a measure. If you've ever danced a waltz or learned how to dance a waltz, all of the dance moves rely on that pulse, on that one, two, three, one, two, three. And you kind of drift along. Bum, 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 bum. And then you can listen to a million pieces that are very famous waltzes. Obviously, the Waltz of the Flowers from the Nutcracker is a really, a really famous one. So the counting goes one, two, three, 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 one. The Nutcracker is really good. The music of the Nutcracker is great. So that's a waltz. A waltz is a common one, though not the most common one. The most common time signature, of course, is 4-4 time. It's so common that it is referred to as 
common time. And sometimes you'll just notate it on a piece of paper by writing a C on the musical staff, which stands for common because 4-4 time is so common. Most of the songs that we talk about on Strong Songs are in 4-4 time. I always specify when they aren't, but 4-4 time is like where you get the standard rock beat is in 4-4. One, two, three, four. So like I said, I don't want to get too caught up in all the particulars. As long as you know that those two numbers refer to two different variables that basically define how we're cutting up the tempo, how we're cutting up the beat, that's what you need to know. So some examples that you'll probably hear include 4-4 four, four time. Like I said, the most common time signature, the one that almost every rock and pop song is in. 3-4 time, also known as a waltz, another very common type of time signature associated with ballroom dancing, but also with, you know, other kinds of music. There's a lot of cool jazz that's in 3-4. You can also double both of those numbers and you will get 6-8, which is another pretty common time signature. That means there are six eighth notes in a measure. It gives you a kind of a more triplet-y sound, a much more subdivided sound. Another one I might talk about on the show from time to time is 12-8, which is really similar to 6-8. It just has like a slightly longer measure. There are 12 eighth notes in a given measure. It's the kind of thing that you'll hear actually in rock music, like on the new pornographers Use It. They go into a really cool 12-8 groove. So it's like... Man, I love that song. So something you've maybe figured out by now is that the first number, at least if you're just kind of a casual music listener, is much more important to you probably than the second number. If a song is in 3-4 or 4-4, the 3 and the 4 are the things that kind of really define how, how it'll feel to you, while the 4 on the bottom is more of a thing that the musicians need to know. A couple more examples. One of them is a very famous jazz song that's in 5-4 time. This is from the Dave Brubeck Quartet album Time Out. It's written by the saxophone player Paul Desmond. This might be a strong song. It's some point in the future, actually, this was the first saxophone solo that I ever transcribed back when I was a little student. But um, Take 5 is a very famous tune, and it's in 5-4 time, which means each measure is five quarter notes long. Let me count it. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Being in 5-4 is crucial to that song's identity. It's what gives it this kind of tumbling, different flow to it than most other songs that you're probably used to hearing. And if you don't realize that you're hearing something with, you know, an extra beat compared to a more common 4-4 time signature, you kind of get it anyways, because it just feels like each measure is a little longer than you're expecting, and it moves in a kind of a different flow. Of course, this album, Time Out, the whole idea of the album is that each song has some kind of a different time signature going on. There's all sorts of different stuff going on on it. This is a great great jazz album to listen to on a lot of levels, but it's fun if you want to get your counting together. You can look up, there's guides all over the place for like what time signature each song is in, and it's fun to try to count them. Of course, another very famous song from this album is the first song. It's called Blue Rondo a la Turk. I've already broken down the counting for this once on this show, but I'll do it one more time. This song starts out in 9-8, which means there are nine eighth notes in each measure. Sounds like this. Let me count it. 
So both 5, 4, and 9, 8 are what's called odd time signatures or odd meter. Meter is another word for like, what is the time signature of this song? What's the meter? Odd meters or odd time signatures are things like 5, 4, 7, 4, 11, 8, 19, 16. Those, that's an actual time signature. Um, and you'll start to hear these really gnarly time signatures um, applied over all kinds of different music. It's not actually as complicated as it sounds. Um, when someone is counting in some crazy time signature like 25-8, it seems like it's super complicated, but once you learn how to feel, it's actually not that complicated. You may have noticed when I was counting Blue Rondo Alatorque, and actually back when I was counting that new pornographer song too, I wasn't just counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Or I was sometimes, but I would never count it that way if I was counting it to a band. I would count it instead, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. Much easier to conceive of it that way, even though it's the same nine eighth notes. So if someone is doing a song that's in 11, eight, say, which is a really intimidating sounding time signature, you're not going to count it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, one, two, three, four. <laughs> you, that's just like a weird way to count. You're going to probably count it something like one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, 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 and that's how you'll feel it. One, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, which is really just four, then three, then four, which if you do the math, eight plus three is 11. Take five even does this. This is kind of, I think, known as a compound time signature. Take five is in five, four, but you can really hear it as three plus two. Check it out. So, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. You don't even really have to count. Past a certain point, you can just get your head around it and learn to hear it. This is exemplified by a guitar player who I love named Corey Wong. He's just great, great player. I saw him live in Portland last year. Just such a good player, such a good time, great live show. He does a lot of audience interaction, and he actually does some kind of strong songs like audience education stuff that's a really good time. So one of his bits, I don't know if he still does this on the road, but he gets the audience to count in a very complex time signature. I'm going to give it to you one more time. What I want you to do is make yourself vulnerable and try to clap at the top of the phrase. Okay, if you don't get it right in rehearsal, you're not going to get it right on the gig. So let's try to get it right here. Here we go. The fun thing is what he does with the crowd to get them to count this very complex passage. He gives the audience a mnemonic device that lets them hear the groove, and this is very clever what he does. He, he gives them something that they can say that will match up with the subdivision of the passage that the band is going to play. I'll let you bypass that time signature course right now with this mnemonic device. Okay, here's how it goes. This is easy. Give me my Chipotle, give me my Chipotle. I want chips, I want guac, give me my Chipotle. Okay. All right, it's a simple mnemonic. It's a really fun way of making it clear just actually how approachable a lot of this kind of counting is. Um, the song that they're doing in question is a Serbian folk song, or that's what he's referring to. And there's a lot of like Baltic music, music from that part of the world that's in all kinds of time signatures that people, you know, who mostly just listen to American pop music don't really get comfortable with. And so as a result, it feels like much more jarring, but it can be just as organic to hear things in an odd time signature, which is sort of a fun thing to keep in mind. Um, just 
one example of that because I want to share it because this is really cool. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Twitter user FungTime asked me about this uh, song. It's an Ethiopian pop song by the artist Timnit Welde, and I'd never heard this before, and we were trying to figure out what time signature it was in. When it comes down to it, it's in 516, which sounds really complicated, but when you listen to it, it totally just flows like water. It's really, really cool. Check this out. So we're going to feel this as three plus two to get five. Here we go. One, two, three, one, two, 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 it's so cool, right? Like, that's how you can totally groove in 516. Completely different sounding thing if you're really used to listening to American music, but it really grooves. And that, if nothing else, is an endorsement for listening to music from other parts of the world because you can start to get these other pulses, these other kinds of grooves into your head. So I could talk about time signatures for another three hours. I'm not going to. We're going to move on to feel, which is the final of the three elements of rhythm that we're talking about. Remember, the first one is tempo. How fast are we moving? The second one is time signature how are we dividing up the beat how are we you know chopping things up the third one is feel which is the most nebulous and least mathematical of any of them but definitely equally important what feel is is kind of how are you interpreting the tempo and the time signature you could give a good drummer you know you could write rock 110 beats per minute and they could play a million different things. They could feel it a million different ways. That information is just a baseline. Feel is where you start to get much more specific and much more personal. How is this drummer, how is this band going to play this tempo and this time signature? How are they going to play it together? How is the music going to feel? The most commonly used word when it comes to feel is the word swing. Swing is a really nebulous term, but a very, very important one, especially in modern American music, but really in in all modern music. Swing is a kind of hard thing to get your head around, but it's kind of cool once you know what it is. Basically, swing means that you displace some of the notes that you're playing just a little bit. You don't change the time signature. You don't change the tempo. You just play some notes later than they would otherwise be played if you were playing completely robotically, like if a metronome was playing them. So if you're playing a standard beat on the drums, this would be straight with no swing. It would sound like this. Now, if you just take the hi-hat out of that, those are just eighth notes. The straight eighth notes, just normally subdivided straight eighth notes, sound like this. Making it swing means you make every other eighth note a little bit later. So instead of getting this, you get this. If you play the hi-hat pattern with a swing on it, it changes the nature of the entire feel of what you're playing. The tempo is the same, the time signature is the same, but the feel is very different. Here's a straight feel, and here's swing. Now that is a very rudimentary explanation of what swing is. Swing is a really complicated thing that can be taken apart and analyzed a bunch of different ways, in part because it's so ever-changing and subjective. All kinds of things swing. Every drummer has some kind of swing in their groove. It's very rare that there will be a drummer who plays completely straight like a robot. And the more swing, to me at least, the better, especially if it's a really distinct kind of swing and a drummer who has a really distinct kind of feel that's all their own. Now I should emphasize here that swing isn't something 
something that only drummers do. Everybody swings. A whole band swings. And when a band is really feeling the music together, they kind of get in the pocket together. They really groove together. And it's all in that feel. You know, they know the tempo. They know the time signature. But really, the magic starts happening when you get everybody kind of feeling it the same. Just one example of feel. I've been listening to the 2000 Steely Dan album, Two Against Nature, for just recently. I've been practicing drumming with it. The feel on this album is so out of sight. It is ridiculous. Here's a song called Janie Runaway. Just listen to how the whole band is so locked into the way they're feeling it together. It's just disgusting. another reason that feel is a hard thing to pin down. It's just not something you can write on a piece of paper and assume that the band will be able to just do it all the same. Every band is different, and it's something that happens when you actually play the music. It just happens. You know, the drummer usually defines it. That's why I always say the drummer drives the bus. But everybody helps define the feel, and then the band just has to feel it together. Great bands work like an organism, and it's really all about feel. A great band can feel it together, and they can adjust the way they're feeling the music so that they feel it differently together as well. It's why those great, great studio rhythm sections, you know, like the Muscle Shoals band, the Funk Brothers, the Stax Records rhythm section, these house bands in through the 60s and 70s, they could just get together and play anything and they felt it all together. There was like a distinct feel that each of those bands had. And that's where the magic is. That's the thing that is very, very hard to replicate. Okay, well, I could keep talking about rhythm for a very long time. We haven't even gotten into rhythms from all around the world, different types of feel from different regions. I mean, there's so much out there, so much amazing music, and a lot of it comes down to rhythm. Rhythm is such a magic and fundamental thing. As much as I love harmony and as much as I can be moved by the colors that you can create by combining different tones, rhythm is just... Our hearts beat, you know? We have a beating heart. We have just like a pulsing bass drum in our chest. And we're moving through time, all of us together. And when we decide to stop and feel the rhythm at the same time in the same place and create rhythms of our own to sort of reinforce that pulse that's already driving us all, that's where music really gets good. And that'll do it for this bonus episode, breaking down the two most fundamental elements of music, harmony and rhythm. This episode was created entirely thanks to my Patreon backers. Thank you so much to everybody who backs this show on Patreon. In particular, I want to shout out anyone who has ever been a whole note backer. And now you know what that means, whole note, you know, it's the top kind of subdivision. Anyone who has ever been a whole note backer, that means you're backing the show for $20 a month. Thank you so much. That is so far above and beyond. I'm actually going to read the name of all of my current and former whole note backers, Access Violation, Andrew Walters, Caleb Rotach, Chad Bernard, Craig Kovell, Dan Upchinski, Dave Flory, Glenn, Jared Norris, Mark Schechter, Merlin Mann, Ryan Torvik, and Sarah Walsh. Thank you all so much. Over on Patreon, we actually just passed another goal, so I'm going to be making another bonus episode. This will probably go up sometime in the next month. This is going to be an interview. I have a couple of cool interview subjects in mind, and I'm excited about that. When we hit our next goal, I will make another bonus episode like this one explaining terminology related to specific instruments. So if you want to hear that, head on over to patreon.com slash strong songs and become a patron and help me keep making this show. All right, thanks, everybody. I will see you next week with yet another strong song. Strong song.